our uh, discussion of heaven. And we, we started this three weeks ago now. And uh, unfortunately, the recording failed. So we don't have a CD of the first session of this, but I'm hoping at some point to um, make that up. Probably won't be on a Saturday morning, but um, at some point we'll figure out a way to get that laid down so that we can have it. Uh, good resource, I think, to have, have these things, uh, at least an audio file, so that you can go back and reference them. But um, because we don't have it on CD, I will briefly review, which uh, I don't like to do too much of that because it wastes time for you know, content for today, but, uh, but just by way of a little bit of review, we began talking about heaven, and uh, that is the ending destination uh, for the Christian. It's the place where we enjoy the presence of the Lord forever, a place that the Bible calls paradise, and, uh, and, and just where, where God is the light of the place, and the conditions are uh, clearly described, you know. But what we're looking at basically are 10 uh, FAQs. If you could go to a website that was called heaven.com, and uh, the purpose of that website was to answer every question or, or f- give you information concerning that place. Uh, and there was on that website an FAQ section, which frequently asked questions. Uh, what would they be? And so we've got 10 questions that we're looking at. And, um, you know, as far as I can see it, these 10 FAQs give to us just about everything that the Bible uh, explains or describes uh, about heaven. And, 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 you know, it's really not a whole lot. You know, in the grand scheme of things, we don't know a ton about it. But what are they? And we looked at the first four last week. We'll look at the last six today. And so just uh, to, to recap but not expound too much, the first uh, of those questions that we looked at is how do we know that heaven exists? And the, the very simple answer to that is because Jesus said so. And he was there, so he would know. <laughs> we know heaven exists because Jesus said he doesn't lie. Uh, he said he's going to prepare a place for us and that he'll take us to where that is. Uh, question number two was, where is it? Um, and, and so we looked at the fact that it is outside of our present universe. We talked about the three heavens, how the first heavens, the Bible speaks of as our atmosphere, The second heavens being the cosmos or outer space where the galaxies, the stars are. And then the third heavens would be beyond that, the dwelling place of Almighty God. And the Bible uses those terms to give distinction between heaven. Heaven the first, our atmosphere, the second, the cosmos, and the third being the place where God's presence is. Now, that description of heaven being outside of our universe doesn't really do it justice. And the reason for that is this. Because on earth, we operate under somewhat of a law. It's a phrase that was coined by Albert Einstein that says that two things cannot occupy the same place at the same time. And in our physical realm, under the limitations that we have in it, that is true. You cannot place two things that possess matter in the same place at the same time. However, when it comes to the spiritual things of God's kingdom... It is possible that two things occupy the same place at the same time. And the scripture seems to teach that heaven, the third heavens, the dwelling place of God, operates on a principle like that. And that is this. 
Luke chapter 17, Jesus said this. He said that the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is in your midst. And the scriptures show that very clearly. You know, we saw that Jacob was lying on the ground in Bethel with his head upon a rock. But he saw from there a ladder that ascended to heaven, between heaven and earth, and he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And he stood up and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. Standing upon the earth, but he was given a glimpse into the invisible realm. We see it in the Gospels with Jesus when he was baptized. It said that the heaven was opened and that the Spirit of God descended upon him in bodily shape like a dove, and a voice came that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So those standing upon earth had an interaction with heaven, which is outside of our universe, although they did it from a place where they were standing right upon our earth. The apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah suddenly appeared. Jesus was glorified in front of them. The voice of the Father again thundered from heaven. An interaction between those on earth and those in heaven while they were yet standing. We have the story of Elisha and his servant at Dothan. And again, they were outnumbered, surrounded by a physical army, the odds absolutely impossible that they would escape with their lives. And yet Elisha said, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And then he said, Lord, open his eyes. And his servant could see and that the whole mountain was surrounded with angels and chariots of fire. And of course, Elisha and his servant escape unscathed. But the vision given there that heaven is among those upon the earth. We saw Stephen in the book of Acts standing upon earth and yet saying, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Still standing on earth and yet able to see something happening right in front of him in heaven. And we see that over and over again throughout the scriptures. And I believe that for us, as we pass, whether it be by death, or whether it be because of rapture or, you know, whatever, well, I guess those are the only two choices. You either die or you get raptured, you know. But whichever it is, I believe for us it will be an oh moment. By that I just simply mean that we will pass through and we will say, oh, and we'll go. And I've seen that expression on people's faces as I've been with them on their deathbed. It's like, oh, and, and the look on the face tells the whole story. It's as though, wait, this is here the whole time, and I didn't even know it. And I believe that, you know, the Bible teaches very clearly that though heaven is outside of our universe as we know it, that because of the dimensional restrictions in our understanding, we don't understand how, but it is yet among us right in our midst. And so where is heaven? It's right here. Number three, what does heaven look like? And again, we'll have to get back into that another time. The most frequently asked question, yet it's the thing that is least explained or described or understood by us in human levels. And question number four is, what is a mansion? And I love the discussion that stirred up after that question we talked last time. Is, is a mansion actually a house made of jewels and gold? Or is a house actually speaking of the body that we will receive in glory uh, from the Lord? And so we talked about that um, last time. Now, uh, the next question that we kind of resume with this morning is on the same vein, speaking of the glorified body that we will receive in heaven. And the question is, what kind of uh, body will we have when we get to heaven? And the second part of that question is, what will it look like? What kind of body will we have, the Christian, the human, 
and what will we look like? And so if you have your Bible, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll begin in verse 35. The first part of that question is what kind of body will we have? The second part is what will we look like? And both answers to both of those questions are in this passage. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 15 of Corinthians, is writing about the resurrection. They had questions about it. There was always debate in Jesus' day and in the early church as to what the resurrection actually was and what it meant. And there was a heresy that there was no resurrection. That was the belief that was held by the Sadducees in Jesus' day. And a form of it crept into the church as well, that there, there is no resurrection. We live for Christ on this earth, but then we die. And when we die, it's lights out. There is no more life or anything else. We live for now, and then we're gone. And Paul writes chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians in order to refute that claim. So the chapter is all about the resurrection. But as he comes to verse 35, which is where we'll pick up, he addresses a specific question in that debate. And that is this, verse 35. He says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? In other words, what kind of a body does someone who's resurrected or raised have in glory? Now he answers the question moving forward, verse 36. He says, Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. So he draws an illustration from horticulture. And we understand the concept. You know, we plant sunflowers. They bear a thousand seeds. They bow over. They die. The seeds fall to the ground. And in the next growing season, those seeds can germinate and bring forth new flowers. However, the seed that is dropped is not a reflection of the flower that will bloom. You cannot tell what the flower will look like based upon the seed. And he's going to build on that here. He says, uh, verse 37, he says, And what you sow... You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. In other words, if you want to plant sunflowers, you don't bury a sunflower. You don't plant the thing that you're hoping to grow, you plant the seed of that plant. That's what Paul's saying here. Now he applies it to the concept of the resurrected body, verse 39. He says, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Now that's on an earthly level, speaking of the fleshly things. And we understand that. There are, verse 40, also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. Celestial means heavenly. Terrestrial means earthly. He says, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. In other words, there's a difference between a spiritual heavenly body and a earthly fleshly physical body. There's a difference between the two. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Now we understand that from the cosmos. We know that the sun works on a fusion principle. 
you know, the explosion of fuel producing light. We know that the moon operates on a totally different principle. It reflects and refracts light. It takes the light of the sun and reflects it towards us so that we, we see what it is. There's a difference. And then of the stars, it's different. They're distant. There's different types of stars, different types of gases. But then he applies it to the spiritual realm and he says, for one star differs from another star in glory. In other words, now that we translate that same concept into the spiritual realm as it relates to our bodies in glory, you can apply the same principle. There is a difference. There is one glory of one. In other words, not everyone is going to look the same. And the idea, the principle, is that in heaven there will be other creatures other than just men. People ask the question sometimes, will my dog, will Fido go to heaven? Or my cat, or my goldfish? or my parakeet, you know, whatever it might be. And people ask that kind of a question. I don't know the answer to it. I don't know. I, I almost, my, my gut tells me, and I would never say this with women or children here, is that no, I don't think so. They were made for this earth. They, they will die on this earth. They are not a trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit like a man. They are a dichotomy. They are body and soul. They can feel, but they're not spiritual, you know. Now, if God wants them in heaven, if you want to believe that they're, that's fine. You know, there's no conflict there with any of that. However, at the same time, I believe that heaven will be prolifer, prolific with creatures, that there will be life there. It will be beyond just what we are, things that we can't even comprehend and understand. Just like he says, there, on earth there are fish, there are birds, there are different types of flesh. So also in heaven there will be different times of life, different types of life. However, as it relates to us now, he brings it back in verse 42. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, that is our body, your body, is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. We are corrupted right now. We all carry the burden and the plague of sin. It's in us. We've been set free from its power and its penalty but we are still plagued by it in our flesh, in our physical frame. We feel and experience the effects of that every day. And thus, when we die, we are sown in corruption. But we will be raised without that corruption. The sin will be separated from us at the point of death or rapture. It is sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body that is terrestrial, physical. It is raised a spiritual body. And there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now that's an interesting verse right there because it's talking about the two Adams in the Bible. First Adam, of course, being Adam who was made in the Garden of Eden from the dust of the ground. He was made in the image of God. He was given a soul and a spirit and created to be in fellowship with God, but he was limited by the physical realm and the earth that he was made out of. The last Adam, which the Bible refers to as Jesus Christ, the firstborn among the dead, the first fruits of them that were dead that were made alive, Jesus was made a spiritual body. Now, when Jesus was raised from the dead, 
we saw that he had a totally different type of body than he did when he was on the earth. It appeared the same, but it was very different. When he rose from the dead, he said to Mary, he said, touch me not. Or he said to Thomas, he said, touch me. He said, I am flesh and bone. He said, I'm flesh. He didn't say flesh and blood. He no longer was flesh and blood. See, blood, the life on earth is in the blood. But in the heavenly, the raised body, it isn't a blood-driven system. It's a spirit-driven system. We won't operate on the principle of blood. We will be flesh and bone. There will be some substance to what we are. But it will not be as we are now. Jesus was able to appear and be touched. He was able to eat and interact with this world. But at the same time, he could disappear on a dime. They could be locked in a upper room, no access, but he could appear among them. He demonstrated that he was able to hear what they were saying, even though he wasn't physically visible to them, meaning that he was present, yet invisible. A totally different type of body than what he had prior to going to the cross, but yet still very much a body. And Paul is getting into that here. It's a spiritual body. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, verse 46, he says, However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man, that is Adam, was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And as was the man of dust so also are those who are made of dust. That's us now. And as the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, we will receive a different type of body than the one we have now. And then in verse 49, he says, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And so we will have a, a heavenly body that, that will be a reflection, uh, yet of man, but of the heavenly man. And so that's the type of body that we will have. You say, okay, well, what will we look like? Am I going to look like myself? My hair is thinning out, you know. Some, some of you uh, can relate to that, you know. <laughs> when we get to heaven, is that, do I have to carry that affliction, that infirmity? In? I mean, I have obvious genetic defects, <laughs> that manifest in my appearance and in my physical limitations. Am I subject to those same things? What will I look like? What will my appearance be when I get to heaven? Well, notice in verse 50. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, just like you could not survive on the moon because the atmospheric conditions are not conducive to support human life on earth, I mean on the moon. So also heaven, if you were to immediately go there in your present state, you would immediately die. The holiness of God, the fire of his presence, you know, probably a thousand things that we don't even know would cause us to immediately just consume, dissolve, because this flesh was not designed for that environment. So something has to happen in order to make us able to bear the conditions of that place. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. But I tell you a mystery. He said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now there's the word right there that answers our question. 
question is, what will we look like? Well, it says that we're going to be changed. What does it mean that we're going to be changed? The word in the Greek gives the idea that it's an upgraded version of the same model. In, in other words, your recognizable, identifiable characteristics will probably still be what they are. There will be something of you that when you are seen, it will be clear that you are who you are. However, it will be perfect. In other words, the genetic defects will be erased. <laughs> you know, there will be some kind of a recognizable aspect to who you are that it's known that you are who you are. Not only will we know each other, recognize each other, we will also somehow recognize people we have never known or never seen on an earthly level. How do we know that? On the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew chapter uh, 16, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured, it says that Moses and Elijah appeared there, and Peter, James, and John knew who they were. There was no introduction ceremony where Jesus explained who they were. They knew who they were. Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. They knew who they were. Having never seen them on earth or knowing what they looked like, they knew who they were. And I believe it will be the same way for us in heaven. We'll see people or, you know, yeah, there'll be people in heaven, and we will know who they were even though we've never known who they were on earth. We're not going to be stupider there than we were here. So, yeah, we'll identify each other. We'll know each other, though we don't know the absolute specifics of it. We know that our bodies then will be a glorified, incorruptible, eternal version of what we are now without the limitations or uh, the infirmities. And so that's the type of body that we will have. Question number six, FAQs, is when will we get there? And that's another big debate that exists amongst Christians. When is it that we will actually get to heaven? Is there a such thing as soul sleep? In other words, when we die, we go into the ground and we wait. Our soul is asleep, our body is decaying and corrupting, and we're just waiting for the moment when we're then called up. The dead in Christ will rise first, like Paul wrote about the rapture, and then we which are alive. So until that point, do we just rest in the ground and wait? Is there such thing as soul sleep? The Bible teaches no. In Revelation chapter 20, and you can turn there, I want to string a couple of verses here for you briefly. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. John writes, and this is at the end. This is after the tribulation. It's immediately after Satan is bound. So the second coming has taken place. Jesus has returned to the earth. And in verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, that is those that were not saved, those that died apart from Christ, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. 
And so he brings up this concept of the first resurrection, being all those that are saved prior to the second coming of Christ. Now watch this, verse 6. He says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death, that is hell, that he's talking about, that's the second death, has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So he says, blessed and holy are all those who partake of the first resurrection. So the question is, when does the first resurrection take place? Is that something that doesn't happen until the time of the rapture? Leave your place in Revelation. You don't have to keep a finger here. Leave Revelation and turn to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 15. Paul writes, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, that is, those who have already died. In other words, we will not go to heaven before they do. If they have already died, they precede us. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. So does this mean that the dead in Christ stay in the ground until the time of the trumpet? I don't believe that it does for a couple of reasons. Number one, is that when Jesus rose from the dead, it says that the graves of many that were asleep, that is, that had died prior to the coming of Christ, that those graves were opened, and that many of the people were seen with Jesus, risen, alive on earth for a period of time before they were resurrected, before they were brought up to heaven. In other words, when Jesus paid the price and the veil was torn, He made a way for the resurrection of the just to take place. And that happened immediately as soon as Jesus rose again. One more scripture. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Last scripture on this point, then we move forward. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 6. Well... Let's back up to verse 1 just so that you understand the context. He says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, that is our body now, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Speaking of the body that's been prepared for us there. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, because we, not because we want to be unclothed, but rather further clothed, that mortality might be swallowed up uh, by life. 
Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, that is right now on earth in our body, we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so Paul teaches that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's what he means back in verse 3. If you look up there again, he says, If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. In other words, when you die, your spirit doesn't suspend itself somewhere or go into a sleepless or sleepful slumbering state awaiting the time for you to have a body. No, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So you receive your body, you go into his presence. In other words, here's the answer to the question. The first resurrection is an ongoing event. It started with the resurrection of Christ, and it goes all the way until the rapture. And all of those who are partakers in the first resurrection, and it does also include those, uh, sorry, also in the tribulation, who are martyred, who lose their life during the tribulation time. That's Revelation 20, verse 4. He talks about those who were beheaded for their witness of Jesus. But all of those until that time are part of the first resurrection, and thus they are considered blessed and holy. It isn't something where there's a soul sleep um, that goes uh, on to that. But we're going to get into that. We're going to come revisit uh, the question that I know all of you have uh, in a minute. Um, we're going to come back to that in a further question. So just hang on to that, and it'll all make sense in a few uh, minutes. So um, the answer to the question, when will we get there? The answer is this. The moment that you die, or the moment that you're raptured, that is when you'll receive your, your glorified body, and you'll be in the presence of the Lord. Uh, now, question number seven I'm looking at here, and I already answered it, so we'll go through this real quickly. But the answer, or the question is, will we know each other? And uh, the answer is yes, we will know each other. You know, we we see that in the the uh, the story of the transfiguration. Um, obviously, uh, we're not going to be stupider there than we are now. So we will. One one thing I did notice that I'll draw to your attention uh, in that transfiguration story, where Jesus was transfigured, glorified, and. and Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah there with Jesus. It struck me, and never seen this before, is Peter's view of himself in that scene. He, he saw Moses and Elijah, and he saw the glory, and he said, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, you know, here in, in this place. And he saw them, Peter saw them, as these supernatural giants of, 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 of biblical, you know, awesomeness, you know, as he, he looked at those guys there. Think about this. How would you view Peter if he appeared with James and John right now? <laughs> you would be like, whoa, it's Peter. You know, you would have the same reaction towards Peter as Peter had towards Moses and Elijah. You know, and, and here's what I took from that, is that there's no small person in the kingdom of God. Because someone, you know, let's say there was, you know, 2,000 years of history to, to keep going on. And someone saw you and your friend glorified. Whoa! <laughs> you know, 
there's no small people. Peter saw himself as nothing, and he was. But Moses and Elijah saw themselves as nothing, and they were. But it's God that makes us because we're made in his image. So don't ever think that you're small or insignificant in the kingdom of God because we're not. So will we know each other? Yeah. Now what about our wives? This is a big hang-up for some people. What's the story with my wife when I get to heaven or marriage in heaven? How does that work? You know, some people think, well, I don't want to see my wife in heaven, <laughs> so I hope I don't have to. And other people think, well, no, I want to, I want to, I'm married, to, I love my wife, I want to be married to my wife in heaven. What's the story? Jesus said this. Jesus said that when you are in the kingdom of God, we are like the angels of God in this one respect. That we are neither married nor are we given in marriage. There is no marriage for those that are in heaven. Now, for some will say, what? That's a very important part of my life, if you understand what I'm saying here. What do you mean? That's not going to exist in heaven? How does that work? What's the deal? I don't know. But here's what I do know. I know that our physical attraction to members of the opposite sex here on this earth is something that is driven by chemicals, attractions, things that God has wired into our terrestrial, corruptible bodies. And that once we get to heaven, those drives don't exist. How many, and don't raise your hands, how many of you are attracted to animals physically? Please don't raise your hand if you are, because this is not like one of those weird confession days at men's discipleship. You know, No, when I say that, it, it causes something inside of you to go, oh, what? That's disgusting. Like, well, How could you even say that? Well, that's what it's kind of going to be like in heaven. It, we're not going to be wired that way. We're not going to be physically mating and reproducing in that regard. It's just not going to be there. You say, well, man, you know, that's hard to understand. It is hard to understand because we're in this body, in this flesh, but it won't be then. When I was a little kid, I really wanted a mini bike. Ten years old, I just wanted a mini bike so bad. My parents wouldn't let me get one. But, you know, as soon as I got a car, I could care less about a mini bike. Same idea when we get to heaven. You know, right now, things on earth that are very important to us, but the moment we step into glory and receive our new bodies... We have a whole new set of drives, desires, ambitions, and affections. And they will be nothing like anything that we've experienced here on earth. And so uh, that's a simple answer to a complicated question, but uh, as it concerns our wives. Now, question number eight is, is there time in heaven? No, I missed one. Falling behind here. Uh, question I, I made two sets of notes because I was trying to refamiliarize, and that turned out to be my demise here because now I'm confused where we are in the thing. Let's do, uh, we'll, we'll say question number um, eight is what will we do there? Yeah, that's where we're at. Question seven, eight, whatever we're on is what will we do there? Is there a harp in a cloud? We get to heaven, standard issue, you get a harp, that's your cloud. Now go sit, go make some music, try to harmonize with the rest of the universe and contemplate your spiritual navel or something. You know? What will we do when we get to heaven? This is what we do know. We know that in heaven there is the equivalent of what we call cities. 
don't know what that looks like or how that translates into eternal things, glorified things, but Jesus said it. He said that in heaven, some will be given charge, responsibility over ten cities, some over five, some over two. We know that there'll be responsibilities. We know that there's an economy. We see that pictured throughout the Old Testament, especially in the passages relating to Satan and his corruption uh, early on. We know that there will be relationships. We know that there will be rank positions and people will have roles. We know all of those things based upon looking at the scriptures. Now, that is a whole lot more than just sitting on a cloud, resting eternally, and just making music and doing nothing. Now, what we do there, what will be our role, our responsibility, and what we do it will be determined by a couple of things that we do now here on earth. Our role, our responsibility, our capacity to operate in his kingdom eternally will be determined by our faith while we're here on earth. The measure and the amount of faith that we have, that we cultivate, that we exercise. Also, our growth. How close we grow to the Lord. How much we grow in our understanding and the knowledge of Him. How much we grow in our intimacy and our experience in relation to Him and how that translates into our uh, you know, walk here on earth. Number three is our investment. The way that we invest in heavenly things. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And so there is an investment program in heaven. Someone said, well, it's every funeral. They say, you can't take it with you. That's right, you can't. No matter what you have on this earth, you cannot take it with you. But you can send it ahead. And the way that we invest in eternal things with our resources, with our time, with our energy, by using our gifts... We are making investments in our eternal habitation in heaven. And so Jesus said it is possible to increase the size of our reward, however that translates, based upon how we invest in heaven while we're here on earth. And the number four, and this is a big one, is faithfulness. How faithful are we in doing what God called us to do here on this earth right now? There's a passage in the Old Testament in the life of David where uh, it was prior to him becoming the king and David had been in Ziklag. He shouldn't have been there. He was kind of backslidden. But he had 400 men with him that were kind of his band of uh, bandits that, that had put their trust in David that were following him around. And as they had gone out to a battle, Ziklag had been overtaken and the women and children were taken captive. The city was burned with fire. And David returned from the battle and he found it that way and he knew what he had to do. He had to go and rescue the hostages. And so he took his men and he said, we've got to go to battle. But 200 of the 400 men were too exhausted to go. They couldn't, they couldn't go. And so David said, all right, then stay here and guard the city. And I'll go with the 200 and we'll, we'll, we'll you know, bring them back. And he does and they're successful. They save the hostages, they come back and they take a great spoil from the enemies. There's reward, there's treasure. And when they come back, they're going to divide the spoils and the 200 men that fought in the battle said, well, the men that stayed behind don't get to keep any of the spoils from the battle. They didn't fight. And David said, not so. 
He said the ones that kept the stuff that guarded the city get an equal portion with those that went to battle because that was their role, their responsibility. They were faithful in that, and thus they will be partakers of it as well. And throughout the scripture, we see that concept played out, and that is this, is that it isn't what you do that will determine the size of your reward. It's if you're faithful to do what he called you to do. In other words, if God called you to raise a family and to be a good Christian witness in your industry or in your business, and you do that faithfully, then you'll receive a full reward for what you did because you did faithfully what God called you to do. If God calls you to mass evangelism like Billy Graham, to hold crusades and lead millions of people to Jesus Christ throughout your lifetime, and you do that and you're faithful, then you'll receive a full reward. But you won't receive less of a reward for raising a family than you will for leading millions to Christ if that's what God called you to do. Because rewards are based upon faithfulness to do what God called you to, not great exploits and things that make us famous in the kingdom of God in that regard. Do you understand? And that's a huge concept and principle to understand. Because we can invest in heaven and we can be rich, great men in eternity even though we might not have the talents or the opportunities that people do on earth to make an impact for the kingdom of God. God rewards based on faithfulness. Huge concept to understand. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. We won't read it, but write it down and read those verses later because in those scriptures, Paul explains what I just said in a lot more words. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. In heaven, everyone will be full. As we talk about this concept of rewards, responsibilities, cities, treasures, crowns, everyone in heaven will be full. However, some will have a greater capacity than others. On earth, you could have a communion cup and you can have a swimming pool. And both of those things can be full to capacity. However, one obviously has a much larger capacity than another. And I believe it's going to be like that in heaven. Everyone will be full. You will be completely satisfied in heaven. You are not going to want one iota more than what you have in heaven. You will be completely full. But you might have less of a capacity than someone else. When I was uh, five years old, my favorite TV show was He-Man. Masters of the Universe. I don't know if anybody here is young enough to even know what that is. You know, one or two. But I loved it. I never missed an episode of He-Man. I used to have the toys, the figurines. I would make up my own episodes in my mind. I would dream about flying on one of those little things that they had. You know, it was like I lived for He-Man when I was five years old. About a month ago, I was at the warehouse outlet, and they had for $5 a DVD of the whole first season of He-Man. I thought, wow, I'm getting it. Five bucks. I can't wait. I'm going to watch He-Man. I'm going to relive my childhood. And so I got home and I popped He-Man in and I sat down on the couch and I watched five minutes and I said, this is stupid. (laughs) What's the point? I have a much greater capacity now than I did when I was five. When I was five, that filled my cup. That I couldn't have wanted anything more in the world than just to play He-Man. And I was full. But now I have greater things, bigger things, better things. 
more important things in my mind, more significant, with greater capacity. It's going to be the same way in heaven. There's going to be people watching He-Man, flying around through the universe. Yeah, masters of the universe. And we'll say, how cute. <laughs> but there'll be other things, greater things. And so our reward and, and what we do there and the investments that we make and how faithful we are to him now are going to make a difference in what we do for the eternity that is to come. And Jesus encourages us to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Um, I'm just going to list the crowns that are listed in Scripture. There's the crown of righteousness for those who loved his appearing, those that loved were waiting for him to come. There's the crown that is called the incorruptible crown. That crown Paul speaks of in the context of those who have disciplined bodies that have self-control. James talks about the crown of life for those that are patient and that endure temptations and trials. The Bible talks about the crown of rejoicing. That's the soul winner's crown. Those that win people to, to Jesus. And then finally, the crown of glory for godly leaders and those that are good examples to younger saints in the Christian faith. And those crowns are listed in the New Testament, and I believe that there's going to be some correlation between what, what the Bible says about those things, the disciplines attached to them, and how it translates into our eternal reward. One more thing on this, what will we do there, and then we'll move on. The last two are pretty quick, so don't get nervous, you know, about the time. But uh, one, one more thing, the supreme obsession of heaven will be Jesus. He will be the treasure that makes heaven heaven. He is what makes heaven heaven. When we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the church in heaven, it says that the 4 and 20 elders that were gathered around the throne, when the angels sung the song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts, it says that they, those elders, dropped to their knees and they cast their crowns before him who lives forever and ever recognizing that everything comes from him, that he is the source, the reason, the glory of all things, and that there's nothing that excels. There's no responsibility, there's no reward, no capacity, nothing that compares with Jesus himself. And thus in heaven, our crowns will mean very little to us as compared to him who died for us that we might even be there at all. And so our crowns will be cast before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will be the supreme obsession of heaven, and we will worship him. And that will be our joy. Question number nine, is there time in heaven? The short answer to that is no. Time, as we understand it, is measured in chronological cycles. We measure a day based upon the rotation of the earth. We measure a year based upon the revolution of the earth around the sun. We measure a month in the time it takes the moon to make its cycle around the earth. And so time, as we understand it, is measured in the cycles of things that exist in the cosmos, in this universe. Heaven operates on an eternal clock, meaning that when you look at the clock in heaven, it always says now. <laughs> there, there's no such thing as time as we understand it from that perspective. It doesn't exist. God is outside of time. There is a perception of time for those in heaven as it relates to earth. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. It says, John says, he was in heaven, and it says that 
a period of time of silence passed, which he says, which seemed to be about the time of a half an hour. So in other words, with his understanding of time based on earth, he said there was silence in heaven that seemed to last about a half an hour. There wasn't a clock in heaven measuring minutes and seconds because heaven isn't dependent upon the rotation of the earth. It's different. He understood time as he could relate it to what he knew on earth, but it didn't exist there in heaven. Now, one more thing on time, and then we move on to the last question. And that's this. I believe that a million years in heaven, which think about that for one moment, a million years, a million years in heaven will pass for you and I in what seems like an hour. And here's why I say that. What's it like for you when you're doing your favorite thing to do on earth? I mean, think about it. What's your favorite thing to do? And how fast does time go when you're doing that? You go, man, it's over already? It seems like I just started. That's what heaven's going to be like forever and ever and ever. We've been here for a million years? Man, I I thought we just got here. We'll be raptured. Boom, seven years on earth passes. How does that measure in heaven? I don't know. (laughs) Jesus say, all right, it's time to go. Armageddon, suit up, get on your horse. We'll say, what? (laughs) We just started. We'll be back, don't worry, Jesus will say. (laughs) A couple minutes. Because that's how it works. I mean, that's eternity. One more thing on time. I told you when we did the uh, when do we get to heaven thing and the first resurrection and all that kind of thing. I want to just blow your mind for a minute. So I'm going to say something. You don't have to believe it. I think you will if you stew on it long enough, but you don't have to believe this. But this is my hypothesis based upon uh, what I see in Scripture. That's this. Is that because heaven, the presence of God, operates in an eternal time, eternal clock, there is no past, present, or future. It is now in heaven. God looks at the universe as we know it as a capsule of time, past, present, and future. And from his perspective, he looks at earth and he can see the whole thing at once. Just like a Goodyear blimp can look down at a parade and see the whole thing from one viewpoint. Those in the parade are at one particular point in that progression. But outside of it, you can see the whole thing at once. That's where God is. He can see the end from the beginning. And for that reason, this is how I think that whole concept of the first resurrection is. That those who were raised with Christ, Matthew 26, the graves were opened, many that slept arose and were seen. You know, Matthew 26, the death of Paul, the apostle, Justin Martyr, Constantine, if he was saved, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, and those that get raptured all arrive at the same time. You know, I don't I don't fully understand that, but I believe that's how it works in the relationship between eternal and the time continuum that we are in here on this earth. So take it or leave it on that one. That was free. Number 10, and then we're done. Who has citizenship in heaven? Who are the citizens? Revelation 21, verse 27. It says this. It says, but there shall by no means enter it 
anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, those are the ones who have the right to be the citizens of heaven. How do you get your name written in the Lamb's book of life? John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, that is Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name. To have your name written in the book of life is the result of receiving the gift of God's grace through the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ and to give your life completely to him. And that's what makes you a citizen of heaven. When does that citizen be, citizenship begin? Turn to Philippians 3.20. Last verse this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Oh, out of time. Sorry, let's pray. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Philippians 3.20. says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is already secured in heaven. It isn't as though when we arrive, we apply for our papers and we're given our official membership card. But at the moment we receive Christ, and our name's written in the book of life, we become citizens of heaven. We have citizenship there. Now, part of that citizenship means that we've renounced our citizenship to this world. What did Peter say? He said, we are pilgrims and strangers here on this earth. This world is not our home. And to become a citizen in heaven means to renounce your citizenship here on earth. Now, the fact that we are citizens in heaven right now, not when we get there, but right now, you are classified as a citizen of heaven. It means a few things. It means, first of all, that you have access to the privileges and resources of heaven because you are a citizen. Just like being a citizen of the United States of America affords you certain rights and privileges. So also being a citizen of heaven affords you the rights and privileges of a citizen of heaven, the child of God. And thus, when we see the promises of God that are laid out in Scripture, we have right to claim them and possess them because we are citizens of his kingdom and thus of his benefits. We are also subject to its culture. If you're a citizen of a place, you're expected to learn the language. How many times have we used that phrase in our own country? Hey, if you're going to be here, learn the language. Our official policy in our country has become, no, citizens, you learn the language of, you know, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm, I'm wandering into a bad place. I can sense it, you know. But what's the idea? The idea is if we're citizens of heaven, we should be acclimated with the culture of heaven. We should understand its principles, its precepts, how it works, the values that it holds. It also means that we're bound by its laws. Now, before you freak out and say, wait, did you just use the L word? Yeah, there are laws that are associated with heaven. There's the law of sowing and reaping. 
The Apostle Paul said, take heed, don't be deceived. What you sow, that you will also reap. That's a, con a law of heaven. That's how things work. There's a disclosure policy in heaven. Jesus said, whatever you say in secret will be broadcast from the hilltops. There's no secrets. Everything will come out into the light. Understand that that's a principle, a law of heaven. There's no secret. Whatever we say and do will be known. There's a unity clause. Jesus said that they may be one as we are one. That's a principle, a concept that heaven works upon. We're citizens of heaven now. Therefore, we ought to abide by what we know is his will. There are priorities. The, the, the order of priority in the kingdom of God is this. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek second the well-being of others. And only last then are we to concern ourselves with our own needs. So the kingdom of God, first. The needs and desires of others, second. And then ourselves, last. And then finally, there is a law of separation. And that is this. Jesus said that if we become over-entangled with citizenship here on this earth, if we're not separate unto his kingdom, but we try to work a dual thing, where, yeah, my citizenship is in heaven, but my operation, my business is on earth. Jesus said, beware, because the thorns will choke the word and become you will become unfruitful. The Apostle Paul gave the exhortation to Timothy. He said that no one who's been enlisted as a soldier entangles himself in the affairs and cares of the world so that he can please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Keep your focus on the main thing. See, And, and if we become too worldly-minded while we're on a journey to heaven, we suffer the risk of becoming unfruitful for the kingdom that we've become citizens in. And thus our citizenship is in heaven right now. And so then how ought we to live? I have a story to close with, but we're out of time. So you don't get the story. <laughs> tell the story? Okay, I'll tell the story. You really had to twist my arm, didn't you? <laughs> There was a little sparrow that was standing on the Atlantic coast and he sucked up a beak full of water from the Atlantic Ocean. And then he hopped. He didn't fly. He hopped west. And he kept hopping west through the east coast states, over the Appalachian Mountains, across the Mississippi River, went through the Great Plains, over the Rocky Mountains, through the desert, and then into California. And he landed on the Pacific coast finally after many, 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 many months. And he spit that little drop of water into the Pacific Ocean. Then he hopped back all the way across the country to the Atlantic coast. And he took another beakful. And then he hopped back over the Appalachians, across Mississippi, through the Great Plains, over the Rocky Mountains, through the desert, through California. And then he spit that second drop of water into the Pacific Ocean. Then he hopped back. And he did it again. By the time that little sparrow empties the entire Atlantic Ocean into the Pacific Ocean, the first morning of the first day of eternity will have passed. It's a long time.
That's what we're headed for. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. May God give us wisdom. Any questions?